Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, as we continue our study through the book of James. Just moving slowly through. Verse by verse, this morning we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15, and then may throw verse 16 in there at the end. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, if you'll follow along now as I read our text, beginning in James chapter 1, verse 13, where we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. To set the context for us, James has been addressing the issue of trials, you know, outward trials, troubles, and afflictions of every kind designed by God to prove and to purify and to strengthen our faith. And this started in in verse 2. In verses 2 to 4, James dealt with the believer's proper response to trials. We're to respond to trials with an attitude of joy when... uh, With an attitude of joy because trials have a great spiritual value because of what God accomplishes in our lives through them. They produce steadfastness, which produces spiritual maturity and greater and greater likeness to Christ. But if we have any hope of having an attitude of joy and persevering under trials, it requires divine wisdom. I mean, we have to have God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly, and that's what James addressed in verses 5 through 8. And trials were to ask God, who is the God who continuously gives, but we must ask in faith, believing, not being double-minded, not wavering in the Lord who gives generously. We'll give without reproach. He'll give us the wisdom we need. And then in verses 9 to 12, James gave us an illustration of this in practice when we talked about poverty and riches, which are commonly experienced trials. Both poverty and riches involve a test in which believers need God's wisdom to see their trial from God's eternal perspective, to stand firm, trusting in the Lord, and and the practical insight to respond properly and to take appropriate actions in light of the trials they face. And so James exhorts the lowly brother, the poor brother, to boast to rejoice in his high, exalted position in Christ Jesus and and the countless spiritual blessings that position brings. 
Whereas the rich brother is exhorted to boast and rejoice in his humiliation. Or in his humility. In other words, that he's no different than the poor brother. That he is no more than a hell-deserving sinner, entirely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God for his salvation and for any other blessings of eternal value. Instead of boasting in his earthly position and possessions, the rich believer is to boast in his position in Christ Jesus, just like the poor brother. He's to boast in God, not in his wealth. And then James said in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Or when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So those who truly love the Lord will persevere, and those who persevere these outward trials are guaranteed inner joy and and happiness in this life and the crown of life in the next. And now as we come to verses 13 to 15, James changes from trials, which all Christians experience, to another kind of trouble. Trouble which is more subtle and is so often much more difficult to handle. And this is the problem of temptation. The word tempted and tempts used in verses 13 and 14 is the same Greek word that is translated trials and trial in verse 2 and verse 12. And the context in which this word is used determines whether it refers to trials, you know, external circumstances that test us, or whether it refers to a temptation, situations in which inwardly we are enticed to do evil things. And here in our text, the idea is clearly that of temptation. The inward enticement to sin, the the strong inward desire for evil things. And evil may be defined as anything, anything that is contrary to God's word and will. And so we're talking about the strong desires and cravings within for wrong things, sinful things, things that that God forbids. And we all know what this is. It's that constant inner struggle between the new nature, the new person we are in Christ, and our flesh, this unredeemed humanness which still has sinful cravings and desires. All Christians engage in in a constant mental wrestling match between the new nature that wants to love and serve Christ and the flesh that loves to sin and craves fleshly things. And that craving, that sinful desire to satisfy our fleshly appetites is so powerful that at times a believer will give in and do just the opposite of what he wants to do and knows that he should do. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7, where as an apostle and a mature believer, he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he said. 
And we all know exactly what Paul is talking about here, don't we? I mean, sometimes we're tempted to act on feelings of jealousy, envy, and pride. Some days our struggle is with gossip and lying. Other days it's with a desire to get revenge on someone who has hurt us. Other days we're tempted with feelings of hatred or, or lust. But all of us are at war in this sense. And the sad truth is that not only do we all fight this daily battle, all of us lose on a regular basis. As James will say later in the book, we all stumble in many ways. We all succumb to temptation and engage in sinful behavior, whether it's words, thoughts, motives, actions, or inaction. In other words, whether it's sins of commission, that is, doing what is sinful according to God's Word, or whether it's sins of omission, not doing what we're supposed to do according to God's Word. Sunday school teacher (laughs) asked one of the little boys in his class, what are sins of omission? And he said, omission? He said, they're the sins that we should have committed but just didn't get around to. The point is whether it's sins of commission or sins of omission, we all succumb to temptation and engage in sinful behavior. And to compound the problem, no one likes to take responsibility for their sin. In fact, we will do almost anything to escape blame. We blame the environment, we blame the government, we blame our circumstances, we blame others, we blame our parents, we blame our heredity, we blame our loved ones, we blame our spouse, we blame our co-workers. I even read uh, one pastor telling about the fact that a, a woman in his church blamed him, blamed the pastor, for her daughter's immorality. She said, if you hadn't have preached on it when she was there to hear it, she wouldn't have done it. We don't like to own up to our guilt. We don't like to take responsibility for our own sin. The natural tendency of man is to blame somebody else for your sin. And the Bible has numerous examples of shifting the blame for sin, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. And one that's humorous, if you know we can put it that way, if sin can be humorous, is when Aaron made the golden calf. Exodus 32, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. You know the people, he said, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's what's become of him. And so Aaron said, I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) So when Moses confronted him, Aaron blamed it on the people, and then lamely says, well, look, I just took the gold and threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I don't know what happened. That's what people do in our world today culturally but it tends to be what we all do personally. Well, it's not my fault because 
It's really not my fault because of, and you fill in the blank. And what's even worse is that we blame God. I mean, we would never admit that we blame God, but we do. Just like Adam did when God confronted him about his sin of eating the forbidden fruit. The Lord said to Adam, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. He wasn't really blaming the woman. He was indirectly blaming God. You gave her to me, he said, and she led me into sin. And then, of course, the Lord turned to Eve, and what did she say? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Blame shifting. Refusing to take responsibility for their own sin. And God did give the woman to the man to be a helper. He wouldn't have been complete without her. And he did create the serpent. He made everything that is, but God did not make them sin. He gave them life. He gave them a garden. He gave them freedom to eat of every tree in the garden. He gave them every advantage they could ever desire. Every advantage in the world was theirs, but they sinned. Not because of anything that God did to them. They sinned because they wanted to sin. And whenever a person sins, it is because he or she makes a conscious decision to do so. But everybody wants to blame somebody else for their sin, even blaming God, and it's been going on from the very beginning. And there's probably a greater tendency on the part of believers to do this than even non-believers because they don't have any sense of God ordering everything in their lives. I mean, we don't go as far as to say God is the tempter because we know better than that. But we certainly do blame God indirectly for the circumstances that we're in. If I had known it was going to turn out this way, I wouldn't have married him or her. Why did you let me? I mean, why are these things happening to me in my life? Why, you know, you, you've created my circumstances. Why is this happening? If I would have known this is what was going to happen at this place, I would have never gone there. Why did you allow me to go? So people don't take full responsibility for their sin. And listen, if you don't take full responsibility for your sin, don't think that your sin can be forgiven. God does not forgive excuses. God forgives sin when it's confessed, acknowledged and confessed. So people pass, pass off their sin on anybody and anything, even blaming God indirectly and sometimes even directly. Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly, when a man's foolishness, when a man's sin brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. His heart rages against God. God, you did this. You put me in this circumstance. And this is the typical human behavior from Adam on. The woman you gave me made me do this. I read that Will Rogers once remarked that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. And that's exactly right. 
Someone else said, the error is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. And how true this is of all of us. But James will not allow that. And neither will the Lord. God is not going to allow us to to get away with blaming others or himself for our sin. As we come to our text this morning, James explains why God cannot be blamed for our temptation to sin, and then explains where temptation to sin really comes from. And in doing so, He provides us with one of the most helpful descriptions of the process of temptation that you will find in the Bible anywhere. He tells us three things. First of all, that temptation to sin does not come from God. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And you'll notice, first of all, he says, when. When? Not if, but when. We're all tempted. In fact, there's not a person in this building this morning who is not tempted daily. And day by day, sometimes moment by moment, we're tempted. No one is exempt from it. There's no spiritual vaccine, no no get-out-of-temptation-free card. No one is immune or innocent. As one man said, the aging monk in the monastery is no more safe from temptation than the young man at the mall. The saint in prayer wrestles with temptation just as much as the salesman in his sports car. Temptation is a lifelong reality. And one of the devil's greatest deceptions is for us to think that we are somehow or another immune to committing certain sins because we're Christians. Or to think that because we're maturing in Christ that we have somehow outgrown temptation. Listen, if if you think these things, you're deceived. You've let your own heart deceive you. As Matthew Henry said, the best of saints may be tempted to the worst of sins. And to face up to that sobering fact is to face up to reality. And all we need to do is remember the godly King David who fell into severe temptation and sin when he let down his spiritual guard. But Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, makes clear that temptation, or he makes clear uh, that temptation is common to man. No person, including the most spiritual Christian, can escape into. Escape temptation. I mean, even the Lord in his humanity, who was without sinful flesh, was tempted, wasn't he, by the devil. And just as it's common to man to be tempted, it is also common for him to lay the blame for his sin on someone or something else, including God. And evidently, some of those James was writing to were not responding properly in the trials that they were called on to endure. And the easy answer for their unbelief brought to the surface by their hardship was, it's God's fault. You know, he's placed us in these circumstances which are simply too much for us. Or that God had lost patience with them, and in his displeasure he had abandoned them and and was deliberately bringing them down. 
And this being so, God was to blame for their sin. But James says no. James says no. God is not to blame. Temptation does not come from God. Notice verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And the Greek word translated here as by is not the common word for by, which means direct agency and is used of Satan who directly tempted Jesus to sin. Instead, James used another word that is usually translated from and points here to a more remote cause. And James did this to show that it's, it's not enough merely to avoid blaming God for being the direct instigator of some temptation. He is not even indirectly or remotely involved. We must not even imply that he is remotely responsible. God is never involved in enticing people to do evil. I mean, God's word is true. We must never say or even imagine that God is involved in tempting us with evil. He never has and he never will. Why? There are two reasons why God cannot be the source of man's temptations. The first has to do with God's very nature. Look at the verse 13. James says, For God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted by anything evil. The Greek word translated here as cannot be tempted is a a rare word used only here in the New Testament. And it carries the idea of being untemptable. You know, without the capacity for temptation. James is stressing the fact that God is untemptable. He is unable to be tempted. He is unsusceptible to evil. Evil has never had any appeal for him. It's it's repugnant and abhorrent to him. Why? Because of his holiness, his absolute sinless perfection. I mean, God stands far above evil and, and cannot be influenced by it. He is invulnerable to temptation. One man said, evil cannot promote even the slightest appealing tug in the heart of God. You see, God is different from the the pagan gods of the ancient world. All of the deities in the Greek and and Roman pantheon and all of the eastern gods of the Babylonians or, or Egyptians were just like people. I mean, you know the stories, the myths, how they seduced and and were seduced. They engaged in the same kind of sinful, debauched behavior as men because they're the figment of men's imagination and they reflect the character of man. But God is not like the pagan deities of, of the ancient world. He cannot be tempted by evil. As one man said, A magnet cannot attract a piece of silver, a golden coin, or a lump of lead. It can attract only iron, because iron has the same nature as the magnet. Just so, nothing in God's nature can respond to temptation. It is impossible for God to be tempted, because of his perfection His holiness. God has no contact with evil, and evil is powerless to bring God into temptation because God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the first reason why God cannot be the source of man's temptations is because God cannot be tempted by anything evil. And the second reason has to do with God's activity. He never tempts anyone. 
For God can look at the verse, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God has never tempted us to sin because he cannot. It's a moral impossibility. His holy character makes such conduct impossible. And this is extremely important because man's propensity from the Garden of Eden to the present day is to indirectly and sometimes even directly blame God in an effort to ease their own feelings of guilt. I mean, human temptation is a sad reality. But God himself, because of what he is, never tempts anyone to do what is morally wrong. Now certainly God tests his people. Yes, God tests us. He uses trials and adversity to prove, to strengthen, to, to purify our faith and to bring us to maturity, but he never entices us to sin. And there is a, there's a big difference, an eternal difference, between testing with trials and tempting to do evil. When God tests us, he does so to cause us to grow in our Christ-like character. He never entices anyone evil. And God's absolute goodness and holiness guarantee the truth of James' statement. I mean, to be holy means to be separate from evil, set apart, unaffected. Holiness has two sides, the inability to be affected by evil and the inability to cause evil. And for God, who is abs the absolute standard of holiness, both are true. James says, God is not able to be tempted nor does he tempt. He's holy. God is holy. God is never the author of temptation or evil. Never. Well, then where does temptation come from? Since God is not the one tempting us to sin, is Satan to blame? I mean, after all, he is the great tempter. So it is his fault when we sin? Well, James doesn't mention here the devil as a source of temptation, perhaps because we tend to give Satan far too much credit when it comes to sin. Because the devil cannot make us do anything that we do not want to do. I mean, James well knew that Satan is busy tempting believers to sin. But he also knew that the ultimate blame lies a lot closer to home. You see, the root of the problem is our own evil. We have no one to blame but ourselves. And so if you and I want to look for someone to blame, all we need to do is look in the mirror. We are responsible. The problem with temptation lies in the nature of man, not the nature of God. And we should never be surprised that the root of the problem is our own evil. And we should never be surprised by the sinful, I mean the horribly sinful capabilities of the human heart, even our own hearts. Like the young priest who joined an older priest for the first time in the confessional. When the day was over, the older priest pulled him aside and said, My boy, when a person finishes with confession, you have got to learn to say something other than, Wow. <laughs> we should never be surprised by the sinful capabilities of the human heart, even our own. And the inclination of the human heart is sinful. 
And we are capable of any sin known to man. I mean, I've shared this before, but the, the, the godly uh, Robert Murray McShane told his congregation one Sunday, the seed of every sin is in my own heart. And that's right. The inclination of the human heart is sinful, and you and I are capable of any sin known to man. And it's only the grace of God that stands between us and the most heinous things imaginable. And so where does temptation come from? Loved ones, it begins with our own desire, and that word is also translated lust. It begins with something that is wrong, it is unhealthy, it is sinful, it is self-destructive, yet we're drawn toward that item or practice or experience or person with an almost irresistible force. We're drawn like a moth into the flame. We're drawn like a bird into a net, like an animal into a deadly trap. It's, it's the magnetism of sin. And where does it come from? Look at verse 14 the source of our temptation. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Notice, first of all, James says, each person, which emphasizes the universal nature of temptation. No person is immune. Every human being is tempted. There are no exceptions. And the present tense that this is in emphasizes the continuing, repeated, and inescapable reality. And secondly, we need to recognize that Satan is not the primary source of our temptations. You heard that right. Satan is not the primary source of our temptations. Certainly he tempts but he is not the primary source of it, as James makes clear here in verse 14. The devil does not make us do it. James traces the source of temptation not to God or even to Satan, but to the seductive power of human desire. Each person is tempted. We are tempted. The source of temptation lies within us. James says we are tempted by our own desire. And this word desire refers to a deep, strong desire or longing of any kind, good or bad. And the context determines whether it's good or bad. Obviously here it refers to the deep, strong, sinful desire to enjoy or acquire something to fulfill the flesh. I mean, this speaks of illicit desires, lusts. I mean, it's desire out of control, and it's selfish, and it's seductive. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James personifies man's sinful desire and identifies it as the cause of temptation. He doesn't blame any external person or object. It's by our own sinful desire. And the word translated here as by carries the idea of direct agency, which means we are not tempted even indirectly by God, but we are directly lured and enticed by our own lusts. The fault is entirely within us. It's our unredeemed flesh. Jesus said in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... 
Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile the person. You see, loved ones, although we have been saved by grace and made partakers of the divine nature and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we still have an enemy within in the form of sinful and corrupted longings, passions, and lusts. One man said, Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. You understand what he's saying? I mean, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Living in fear doesn't make us fearful. We live in fear because fear fills our hearts. Looking at a woman with lust doesn't make you lustful. You look at a woman lustfully because your heart is filled with lust. Telling a lie doesn't make you a liar. You lied because you're a liar inside. That's what your heart is full of. Fornicating doesn't make you a fornicator. You fornicate because your heart is full of fornication. That's what you desire. Committing adultery doesn't make you an adulterer. You commit adultery because your heart is full of adultery. That's what you want. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. There's a Latin phrase that says that, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saints and sinners. And so James paints a graphic picture of how we're tempted by our own illicit desires or lusts. And notice he says, we are lured and enticed. These are hunting and fishing terms. The Greek word translated lured has the meaning of dragging away as if compelled by an inner desire. It was used to describe wild animals being drawn or lured from safety by the scent of food into baited traps. One man referred to it as the magnetism of desire, the hypnotic attraction of bait for a hungry beast. And the Greek word translated enticed was a fishing term used to refer to bait whose purpose was to also lure the prey from safety to capture and death. And it pictures a fisherman casting his bait near the fish, giving it just the, the right tug against the current so that the fish is enticed out of his hiding place to inspect the lure. And then once he inspects it and, and finds it attractive, the fish closes its mouth on, mouth on the juicy bait only to find that it concealed a deadly hook. But you see, the lure could only attract the fish because his desires lured him into danger. In both cases, there are external issues involved, but they cannot harm the animal or fish unless their desires drive them to seize the bait or enter the trap. I mean, animals and fish are lured into to traps and hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. 
mean, it looks good. It, it smells good. You know, appealingly or appealing strongly to their senses. And their desire for the bait is so intense that they lose all caution and, and overlook or ignore the trap or the hook until it's too late. The problem was their own lust pulled them from safety into the deadly trap just waiting for them. And in exactly the same way, we give in to temptation when our own lusts draw us toward evil things that are appealing to our fleshly desire. And sin can look so attractive and so pleasurable, and it usually is for a while. I mean, the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. Otherwise, it would have little power over us. And Satan tries to make sin as attractive as possible. But there would be no attraction for sin if it were not for man's own sinful lust, which, as one man said, makes evil seem more appealing than righteousness, falsehood more appealing than truth, immorality more appealing than moral purity, the things of the world more appealing than the things of God. We cannot blame Satan, his demons, ungodly people, or the world in general for our own lust. Even more certainly, we cannot blame God. The problem is not a tempter from without, but the traitor within. We're tempted when we're drawn away from the things which keep us safe by our own lustful desires. We're lured by the bright, delicious temptation. And in a moment, you know, we forget who and what we are. We give no thought to the danger or the devastating consequences in the future. Instead, we, we just throw caution to the wind. We take the bait. We bite the deadly hook. And so it was for Adam and Eve and Samson and David and many, many others since. Dietrich Bonhoeffer I read this in several books. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gives a description of the power of temptation. Listen to this. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. Makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me, now here in my particular situation, to appease this desire? And it is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. popular song from years ago expressed this same idea. You know, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? With God out of sight and out of mind, we will do whatever we have to to acquire what our lustful desires tell us we need so much. Sin is deceitful. It always looks far better than it really is. I mean, it is attractive and appealing, but it promises more than it will ever deliver. 
And it always hides the fact that yielding to the desire will eventually bring pain, sorrow, punishment, and devastating, long-lasting consequences. It was Warren Wearsby that said, when David looked on his neighbor's wife, he would never have committed adultery had he seen the tragic consequences. The death of a baby, the murder of a brave soldier, the violation of a daughter, the bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of sin. You see, the old saying is true. Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, desire in itself is not sin. I mean, merely having desires is not sin. Desires are good and and natural. I mean, however, when those desires turn into lusts, you know, desires out of control, then they're sinful. They become sinful and destructive. And even things that are good and, and honorable can be lusted after for sinful reasons. The desire for sexual intimacy in marriage is good. God designed it that way. But when the desire goes beyond marriage, it is sinful. I mean, sexual intimacy was designed with no exception exclusively for marriage. And God's word condemns few sins more severely than sexual intimacy apart from marriage. The desire for food, you know, for nourishment, for, for, for fuel, for living is good. God gives us many good things to enjoy. But when we desire it in extreme ways, it's gluttony, and it's become an evil desire. The desire to get along with others, you know, to live in community is good. But when we desire it to the extreme that to get along, we are willing to compromise our faith, it's an evil desire. The desire for pleasure and to enjoy life is something that's wonderful. And again, God has given us all things to enjoy richly. But when our desire for pleasure becomes the most important thing in our lives and it causes us to neglect God and the things of God, it's become a sinful desire. When even the good desires given to us by God are lusted after for sinful reasons, they are sinful and destructive. So James is crystal clear. The source of temptation is not God or even the devil, but but our own sinful hearts. We are lured and enticed to the hook by our own lusts. We are accountable. And no one else. And if you're in the grip of lust, the fault is yours and yours alone. And when we find ourselves in the place where we have been lured and enticed into sin by our own sinful desires, we have to take full responsibility for our sins and then take them to God, run to Him. We can't blame them on no one but ourselves. And when you lust after someone or something, it's because of your own sinful desires. It means you have allowed your lust rather than God's Word and God's will to direct you. And if that's you this morning, 
If that's you this morning, there is only one thing to do, and that is turn around and run. Run! Run toward the safety of Christ. You need to turn around and run this morning. Oh, for the love of God, if you do, turn around and run. Run! We need to know how temptation works so we can recognize the danger and and find a way of escape. Sin, for the most part, is not merely a spontaneous act, but the result of a process. So now in verse 15, James instructs us in the process of temptation. He does so in terms of the birth of a baby. Notice verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When desire, the the sinful, lustful desire in our hearts for someone, something, some feeling, some experience has lured and enticed us, And then we begin to indulge that desire. In other words, we begin to think about it. Uh, Then our minds begin to rationalize a justification for getting it. The desire to have what we want is so strong that, you know, we disregard the, the dangers and the harm. Simply, you know, wanting it justifies the effort to have it. And it's at this point, James said, the desire is conceived in our minds. In other words, like the unwary fish biting on the deadly hook, we grab a hold of the tempting thought, believing that it's really going to bring us satisfaction. And in our minds, we picture it, we fantasize about the pleasure uh, it would bring. We, we savor the fantasy, we imagine new and, and sinful scenarios, and, and we, we want what will destroy us, because we're blinded by our lust. And when desire like that is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin is born. Sin is committed right there in the mind. It's exactly what Jesus himself said. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, Jesus made it clear that lustful intent in the heart or in the mind is sin, even if we do not literally, physically act upon it. When the heart is set on having the forbidden thing, whatever that may be, even if the sinful act is never committed, you have sinned. And you've probably sinned multiple times, just committing it over and over and over again in your mind. And then you will commit the act if you have the chance. And so when the opportunity presents itself, you'll actually commit the sinful act because what rules your heart controls your actions. And the sin, when it's fully grown, when it comes to fruition, when it becomes an action, when it takes place, it brings forth death. That's the consequence, James says. It leads to death. So think of sin that way. It is conceived in your heart, then it goes to your mind where you play it out, and then it's given a place in your will, and then at the right place, at the right time, it's born, 
as one man said, a killer. It's born a killer. Because all kinds of deadly things come from sin. As one man noted, King David illustrates James verses 14 and 15 in a very powerful way. You know the story there from 2 Samuel chapter 11. While his armies were out fighting, David stayed back in Jerusalem lounging around the palace. If he had been out where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing, if he had been with his army, he would have avoided the devastating fall into immorality. But instead of waging physical war on the battlefield, David fought a spiritual war against temptation and lost. It started out innocently enough as he was, you know, walking on the palace roof. The king's eye caught a woman bathing. And this accidental glance was not in itself a sin. But that unintentional glance quickly became a willful stare. And we're told he noticed she was very beautiful. And the focus of his gaze and his internal desires conceived the powerful temptation that few men in David's position could resist. And so like a victim dropping through a trap door, David's plunge from temptation to sin followed in breakneck progression. We know from 2 Samuel 11, David inquired about her, he sent for her, and he slept with her, all inside the space of four verses all the while knowing she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that was horrific enough. But David's sin didn't end in adultery. No, his immorality turned into a cover-up, leading ultimately to two deaths, the death of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and the death of a son, the product of David's adultery. I mean, from lust to death. David's temptation is a textbook example of temptation and sexual lust. It's almost as if he took our text in James as a script. And the most frightening thing about David's sin is that it happened to a man after God's own heart. A godly man. And so if a great man of God like David can fall so suddenly and so severely, none of us should think for one moment that it cannot happen to us. That's the bad news about temptation. Remember the order. It's desire, sin, and death. Desire, sin, and death. But in the Bible, when we think of death, we usually think of physical death, the separating of, of the soul from the body and, and spiritual death, separating the soul from God, and then eternal death, separating both body and soul from God for eternity. But what does death mean in light of the fact that James is speaking to believers? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, all believers, including James Readers are saved from spiritual and eternal death. So what does James mean by death in light of the fact he's speaking to believers? If the moment we sinned, it automatically resulted in physical death, we'd probably all be dead before we left here this morning. 
Because remember, it isn't the, the sin that you commit, like there's you know, big ones and little ones. It's any sin. So if any sin that we you know, conceived of in our minds caused us to die, we'd all be dead in short order. So what does it mean? Well, for the believer, sin may lead to death in this way. It may lead to the death of your spiritual ministry. It may lead to the death of relationships. It may lead to the death of a marriage and a family. It may lead to the death of a partnership. One commentator suggests that it means a death-like experience for the sinning believer. And he explained it this way. Jewish Christians saw people as either traveling the path of life, walking with Christ by the Spirit, or the path of death, which they uh, meant by that, walking apart from Christ in the flesh. This death-like experience, uh, he writes, is the opposite of the abundant life Christ promised. So no longer can the sinning believer walking in the flesh in a death-like existence live out the true life in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For those walking in this death-like existence, or from those walking in this death-like existence, are gone the signs of spiritual vitality like fading memories of estranged friends. And so I suppose that that's possible. But there's also another aspect to death, as James speaks of it here. I mean, we know from Scripture that if a believer persists in willful, unrepentant sin, he may pay the penalty of physical death. God may take him or her home early. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, we know this from Scripture, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because some believers in Corinth were partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. You know, they were coming to the Lord's Supper with, with unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin in their lives. Because of that, they brought judgment on themselves. And that is why Paul said, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some had died. They willfully continually persisted in sin, and so God took them home. I mean, John also reminds us that even for believers, there is a sin leading to death. See, loved ones, sin is devastating. We take it so lightly. But sin is devastating. And sin has consequences. And if you choose to sin, you do not get to choose the consequences, but you will surely live with them. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, Aesop tells a fable about a farmer who went out to his barn during the winter and found a snake that was so cold and so frozen that it was as stiff as a stick. Well, the old farmer had compassion on the creature and took it and nestled it inside his shirt, under his shirt and his coat. Of course, the snake was revived by the warmth of his body and it just resumed its natural instincts and bit the farmer with its deadly and poisonous fangs. 
And the man died in anguish and agony. You see, some of us think that we can tame the serpent. In other words, we think we can play around with temptation. But sinful desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. Know it. Take heed. And in closing, a couple of things need to be said. First of all, we need to understand that uh, simply being tempted is not a sin. Because we are all tempted in many ways every day. And we will never stop temptations from coming in this life. But temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. Being tempted by evil is not the sin. It's what you do with the temptation. It becomes sin when we allow the temptation to become action, even in our minds. I mean, lust, for example, is sin, even though it may never be acted upon. Covetousness, pride, greed, envy are all sins of the heart, even though they may not be apparent to anyone else, they're still sin. When we give in to the temptation to entertain such thoughts, they take root in our hearts and they defile us. When we yield to temptation, we replace the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. And many times, what was first entertained as a thought becomes an action. So being tempted by evil is not the sin. The sin begins when our evil desire drags us away from where our hearts need to be and we begin to entertain the evil in our thoughts. We begin to think upon it. Secondly, when a temptation, an evil desire comes, we have a choice. We have a choice to make in that moment. We can reject it as Jesus did and refocus on the path God has set before us or we can entertain it. You know, with regard to temptations... As someone has said, we cannot stop the birds from flying over our heads, but we certainly don't have to let them build a nest in our hair. So we can't stop temptations from coming. But we can certainly stop entertaining them. When temptations come, we need to remember that we're not helpless. We can choose to give in or we can choose to resist. And when we encounter temptation, we should immediately reject it, just as Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Hey, Joseph is a great example of someone who did not allow temptation to become sin. Because although tempted to sin sexually, he didn't hang around. He didn't stick around. I mean, he used the legs that God gave him, and he ran. He literally fled the scene, left Potiphar's wife, holding his clothes. He ran out of there. I mean, rather than stay in a potentially dangerous situation and try to talk, reason, justify, explain, or otherwise weaken his resolve, Joseph took off running. I mean, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful passions or youthful lusts. Flee. It means take off immediately, which is exactly what Joseph Because if we don't, if we hesitate, if we make provision for the flesh and give it the opportunity to choose evil, we may be overwhelmed by its power. 
Listen, Samson was physically a very strong man. Yet he was no match for his own lust. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, we must keep our thoughts where Christ wants them to be. In Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, give us instruction for avoiding situations that can lead to temptation. Paul said there, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And then he said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we determine to make no provision for the flesh, we'll keep ourselves out of situations that may prove to be too tempting. When we put ourselves in situations where we know we'll be tempted, we're just asking for nothing but trouble. And remember, God promises to provide a way of escape when we're tempted. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So your temptations are not anything special. They're not unique to you. There's no temptation that has overtaken any of us that is not common to man. And then he says, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Well, that's good. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But God, so God promises to provide a way of escape when we're tempted, but often that way is to avoid the situation altogether. Often that, that is to flee, to run. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, which does not mean that God, they were praying that God wouldn't lead them into temptation. That is uh, just the believer's desire that God would enable them to avoid the dangers of sin altogether. But we have a responsibility to pay attention to the direction that God is leading us and avoid temptation whenever we can. We need to avoid it like the plague. We can avoid many temptations simply by avoiding places and situations where we know they're most likely to occur. We can avoid it by not reading certain magazines or books or by not watching uh, certain movies or, or television programs, by not hanging out with people or, or going places where you know you're going to be exposed to any sort of temptation to sin. Instead, we need to make sure that we're exposed to things that feed our hearts and minds in godly ways. I mean, in our battle against temptation and sin, we have to use the resources that God has given to us. The means of grace, you know, such as the Word of God. The Bible says that God has given us His Word to equip us for every good work. It, it teaches us how to live and what to believe. It, it reveals to us when we have chosen the wrong path. It, it helps us get back on the right path, and it helps us to stay on that path. The Word of God is the tool the Spirit uses in our lives. It, it's an, an essential and major part of the armor that God gives us to fight our spiritual battles. It is the sword of the Spirit. Another crucial resource in our battle against sin is prayer. It's a resource that, that most Christians give lip service to but make poor use of. And prayer is not some kind of magic formula. 
Prayer is the humble acknowledgement of our own weakness and limitations and our utter dependence upon God's inexhaustible power. It's a turning to Him for the guidance, strength, and power to do what He wants us to do, not what we want to do. Another resource in our war against temptation and sin is the church. The church is God's context for change. The Bible knows nothing about uh, isolated Christians. The Bible knows nothing about, well, you know, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going on over here. We don't need the church. The Bible knows nothing of that. It knows nothing of an, a believer who isolates himself. Proverbs says, the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. In church, the, the fellowship of other believers is where we worship, it's where we're taught, it's where we're strengthened and challenged and encouraged and, and equipped, for, equipped for the life we're called to live. And the Bible commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to use that time for serving one another and encouraging one another in love and good works. You know, a couple thoughts about the whole COVID thing that's been going on for a year now. When it started, we didn't have the capability of doing live stream, which we uh, quickly began to work on and got up and running, and we're very thankful that we have it. But it's also created a problem because many people now are being complacent. And rather than getting up out of bed and getting dressed and coming to church on Sunday because there's no other reason that they should stay home, they're staying home. Staying at home in their pajamas and watching it online. And look, uh, there are some people that, elderly people with underlying health conditions, that's fine. That's, we want that, and that's why we have it. But for, for many others, it, it's not a case anymore of health and safety. It's become a matter of nothing but just pure complacency and laziness. The Bible commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then we also have to remember that we have the indwelling Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us to guide us and to enable and empower us to walk in the Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so God has given us the means by which we can resist temptation. But we have to use them. We have to use them. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brother or sister in Christ, you know, whatever sin you're flirting with this morning, you know, whatever sinful desire you're fulfilling, there is only one thing for you to do. And that is stop. 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 Run away from it. Turn around and run to Jesus Christ. Because death brings, sin brings death.
So the good news is that any temptation can be resisted. When you can resist the desire, you can turn from the bait, you can run the other way, stop that process before it leads to death. But if you're tempted and you embrace the desire and walk into the trap, the result is sin in the heart and eventually sinful acts and behavior and it will result in death. It will result in consequences you don't want to live with. That's the process. Evil desire acted upon results in sin, which results in death. And then verse 16, and there's debate as to whether verse 16 belongs with these verses or the verses following. I'm inclined to believe that they follow or they belong with the verses following, but uh, they certainly have something to say to us here. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So Christians aren't to make the mistake of blaming God uh, and others rather than themselves for their sin. So he's saying, Stop blaming God, stop blaming other people, stop blaming circumstances or Satan for your temptations and sin. Above all, don't blame God. Take full responsibility yourselves. Realize that your enemy, your fallenness, your lust, your weaknesses, your rationalizations and justifications and your sins are within and have to be dealt with from within. We have to take full responsibility for our sin and then take it to God. I mean, run to Him. Run to Him. Why? Because He promises forgiveness of sin. That is such wonderful news. Because we all sin. But we need to run to God who promises forgiveness of sin. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But again, God does not forgive excuses. He doesn't forgive you blaming your sin on someone else. We must take full responsibility for our sin, acknowledge it before our Heavenly Father, confess it to Him, ask for forgiveness, and He will forgive. The same grace that saved us continues to forgive us. God forgives sin. He will forgive us with a forgiveness made possible by the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to celebrate together this morning as we come to the Lord's table. I can't think of a more fitting time to come to the Lord's table than than following this message about sin.
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.